0: I'm Rolf Fontanelle and this is The Schweppe, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we're speaking with Allegra Baggio Corradi from the Warburg Institute in London Hello. and a lady who knows a thing or two about a gentleman called Niccolo Leonico Tomeo, an interesting player in Renaissance humanism and in metaphysics and all kinds of interesting stuff. Yes. So, Um, Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Um, (laughs) Allegra, tell us the basic introduction, Mm -hmm. the basic historical presi of who this guy is, who is Tomeo.
1: So, Leonica was born in Venice in 1456 from emigre Greek uh, parents. Uh, who, um, well yes, they came in the early 15th century to um, Italy and they settled there and then at the age of around 10 he moved to Padua um, to under the, basically the protection, let's call it, of his uncle who was a pharmacist. And that was his first encounter with practical medicine. That's um, a very fascinating period of his life about which we do not know very much. Then he uh, was schooled um, in, um, in Italy, between, uh, basically in Rome, Florence, and Milan uh, with Demetrius Calcondos, another emigre from Greece. And uh, he was then mainly active in Padua for the rest of his life until his death in 1531.
0: So when you say Greece, we're, we're talking about the, the kind of rump of the East Roman Empire, which is collapsing at this stage, right? Exactly. Well, you say he was born in 1456, so three years after the fall of Constantinople. Were his parents, I don't know how much we know about them, were they refugees?
1: We do not know anything about them. Uh, We have some very small accounts in registers in um, the Venetian archives that mention very practical things like property um, that they owned, but we have no information at all about um, them, uh, what they did or what profession or literally nothing. We only know um, about this uncle and um, it's actually um, interesting because we know about the figure from a poem that was found and it was written in Macaronic and it was the first ever Macaronic poem uh, which Toméo and his peers wrote uh, in the 1470s while they were at university.
0: Tell us what a Macaronic poem is.
1: Uh, Yes, so this uh, poem uh, was uh, composed in a language that was a mixture between let's call it a broken Latin and also a broken vernacular. And it was very fascinating. It was an experiment, really, in uh, this um, literary um, genre that didn't exist yet. And they um, wrote this this little episode, which was essentially a game they played in the pharmacy of Tomeo's uncle and it was a story of ghosts and and phantoms and it had to do with all sorts of um, creepy things that these university students did uh, during their free time. But it's very interesting because it gives us a a small insight of actually how culture was produced at that time in in Padua. Because it was mainly basically based on dialogues, on interactions between men who um, who entertained really strong friendships. So, really, knowledge was mainly dialogical, uh, but from experience. So, they mm. really talked about these things, and that's how they produced their dialogues, uh, which were mainly just literary elaborations of their real-life dialogues around tables as if they were um, at symposia (laughs) talking about all these um, remote uh, concepts and they just tried to find a way to make them relevant to their own lives. That was the most interesting aspect of Paduan uh, philosophy and literature uh, which was also very different from the rest of the country.
0: Cool. Before we get on to Paduan, what makes it special? Am I right in thinking that Tomeo, so Tomeo, he's a son of Greek immigrants. Yes. So he's basically like the son of sort of, I guess, the second or maybe third generation of Byzantines who have come to Italy. Yes. Presumably his family will have come into an immigrant community that already existed and somehow sort of made their way in this community. And that's how they ended up being able to educate him and stuff like that.
1: Exactly. So in Venice, the Greek community was very big. And it's not surprising that they settled there, of course. Then in Padua, it was, say, slightly different. The community was not so big, but uh, the point is that um, Padua, being part of the Venetian Republic, there was absolutely no difference between the two cities, and um, that was also clear in the way that university was structured, because the two universities were basically complementing each other. In uh, in Padua it was more about theology and philosophy, and in Venice it was very much about practical needs, politics, diplomacy, rhetorics. So in Venice uh, most of the education of the future political leaders happened, whereas in Padua it was mostly about the humanists. Right.
0: So and clergy? And, and the clergy, priests?
1: exactly. That was also in Padua, uh, for sure, not in Venice.
0: Okay. The worldly sink of exactly. the Serenissima. Now, we know Tomeo because he wrote stuff. Exactly. What did he write? Well, his he thought, and his thought is preserved in books. So what, is, what are his books, first of all?
1: Yes, so um, the very first um, text we know uh, was printed, so we can follow the, the printing um, chronology, which doesn't correspond to the writing um, with the... Right. With, yes, uh, unfortunately, that's the problem with Tomeo because we do not know at what point he wrote the, the works. We only know when he actually decided to publish them. He was, very, he was a very unsure man, very shy, uh, very modest. Uh, he didn't want to get his ideas out there. Um, He was only very much pushed by his humanist friends who um, read all his works because it was a practice to actually share the work and circulate it among friends, but he was very against publishing it. So um, his very first work was published in 1516 and it was a uh, translation of Ptolemy's uh, Inerrantium Stellarum, a work that had to do with astronomy, but unfortunately, <laughs> we know now, it doesn't really correspond to any of Ptolemy's work, so it's a pseudo, um, pseudo-Ptolemy text. Anyway, that was included in a miscellaneous book on various astrological um, matters. Then Tomeo published his Opuscola, um, that were a collection of texts on natural history, um, so they were mainly comments and translations on Aristotle, uh, plus a text. Uh, there was a translation from Proclus' comment on Plato's Timaeus. Mm, interesting. Um, yes, only the part on the generation of the soul, which is um, long enough. <laughs> so it's a whole book <laughs> on itself. Yeah. So that was one phase, and. Um, The year after that he finally published his dialogues, so that's a completely original work by him. Um, It's a set of ten dialogues on the life, afterlife, powers, immortality and essence of the soul Um, in a very humanist uh, style, very characteristic of the time. Um, Then he published uh, commentaries and translations as well on Aristotle's books on the animals, all of them, Uh, motion of the animal, progress, everything. Um, all the books. Then after that, um, a second edition of the dialogues came out uh, with a supplementary dialogue. Um, So first of all, first uh, edition, they were nine, then he added one, uh, prompted by his friends because there was an issue that was still unsolved. So he then wrote the the final um, one on the essence of the soul, which was the most complicated uh, controversy they had been talking about for 30 years in their uh, meetings. Then he published this very big collection of um, miscellaneous um, histories uh, taken from mythology, from um, natural history books such as Pliny, for example, who was a big reference for him, and um, they. Um, they were um, gathered into three three big books um, called Three Books on Various Histories and uh, they enjoyed a really big um, editorial success in Italy because also they were translated into the vernacular but also they were translated abroad uh, in France. And then posthumously in uh, 1540 Tomeo's niece published a a translation of the last books uh, the last book on the... Uh, movement of the animals that Toméo didn't want to publish because he thought it was not um, well done enough. But of course, the nephew did not care about that because he needed money, so he just printed it. Right. Yes. Uh... So,
0: so Toméo's stuff was was selling. It was popular.
1: He was selling, and that's also a very interesting feature of his uh, life because, of course, now he is almost forgotten, I would say. Uh, Whereas during his lifetime, we also know from um, correspondence, He was really well known. Um, He was friends of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Um, He corresponded with Guillaume Budé um, in Greek. He, as you would too, uh, he was the teacher of Pietro Bembo, which is something that not many people actually understand what kind of influence he had on the most important uh, Italian poet of the 15th century and 16th century. So he taught him Greek. He was the one who schooled him. Um, so his legacy in Bimbo is still to be studied. Right.
0: What's unfair is he probably grew up speaking Greek fluently and Italian, yes. right, and Latin. Latin. But Latin, he would have sucked Latin in through his pores even if he wasn't speaking it, right? So it, it, it's, it's too easy for people like that. They just, you know. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yes. 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 And not at all. Um, But uh, that's also a very big difference from many of other um, humanists in Italy because who had
0: to work
1: exactly really hard. No grammar
0: work. No grammar books. Not really good grammar books. Like just learning from masters and
1: yes reading and reading and reading yes they had to ask for help um, to enormous amounts of um, emigres who came from um, greece (laughs) and uh, they they spent years i mean ficino himself uh, in florence um, spent enormous amounts of years uh, studying greek before he could translate all he did yeah Um, so
0: since you mentioned ficino who's a name that that many of our (laughs) listeners are familiar with this guy's a contemporary of Ficino.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Knows Ficino?
1: Yes, I assume he knew him. Um, there's no mention of this, um, which really annoys me. But we know that he read um, most of his books, and you know the, the three books on life, it's a sure thing that he read it. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: But he had his own thought, which is not <laughs> the thought of Ficino. So what can you tell us about Tomeo's theory, his thought, his metaphysics, his physics, his theory of the soul? maybe contrasting it with what was going on in Florence at the same time, maybe not, depending on what you think is relevant?
1: Sure. Um, well, the, the main difference, I would say, first of all, is this idea that in, uh, in Padua, what we would call now paganism, was considered to be a cultural um, set of independent laws from Christianity. So it wasn't integrated into Christianity because there had to be a complete correspondence between the two, as for Ficino, for example, um, with this idea of the Prisca Theologia, which um, had to be really a a complete synthesis between the two worlds. In Padua, they were um, very much into, they called themselves grammarians, not philosophers, which is very different, because a grammarian in the Renaissance was a combination of philologist with philosopher. So that's a very different approach. As a matter of fact, Tomeo never called himself a a philosopher. He always called himself a grammarian. So what he's trying to do with not only with paganism, with also with Christianity, um, he is trying to be a philologist. So he's trying to reconstruct the original meaning of scripture as much as of Plato and Aristotle. So what he does is he Given that, at that time, um, many new manuscripts were available, he went back to the original manuscripts um, and he read the originals and he translated from the originals without relying on the medieval commentators or the Arabic accretions. He he wanted to restore the original thought. Um, So that's the um, very basic difference. Uh, which is more into uh, more concerning the method, really, uh, rather than the content. Um, whereas in the on the side of the content, um, well, that's a big chapter. <laughs> so. Um, well,
0: tell us about what what let's say students of esotericism. Yes. The history of esotericism. What what are they going to find of interest in Tomeo's thoughts?
1: Yes. Well, for sure, the most interesting aspect, I would say, for example, uh, I would never call Tomeo a th- Theurgist, but I would certainly um, say that there's plenty of elements of natural magic in his philosophy. But that's because um, the way he sees, for example, prayer, sacrifice, oracles, all these um, magical elements—they um, are functional, but they are also they're functional to uh, ascend or to purify once mm, the body and the soul but they are mainly always um, linked to nature. So for Tomeo, there's always a material element in everything that is spiritual, uh, which does never prevent the soul from ascending. That's very peculiar, um, but in Padua, matter was not despised, (laughs) as in Florence. Uh, But that's because of the Aristotelian background that Padua had, So Padua was a powerhouse of Aristotelianism, but also really radical Aristotelianism.
0: Now, paint us a picture of what that means, right? Mm -hmm. Because what it doesn't mean is something a lot like aristotle's school back in the fourth century no right like it means something else what is does what that radical aristotelianism mean in this period in this place
1: yes so um well the main thing to remember is that uh, in padua aristotle was read through the commentators mainly alexander of aphrodisius and Avicenna. so that's what all students at university would read uh, not original, not Aristotle yeah. in the original, like Domeo would do in the late 1400s by teaching um, natural science in the original. That's completely new. Right. As a matter of fact, he was not hired by the university, but he was always kept as an aide. So, basically, he was not uh, teaching what was the canonical curriculum. He was a supplementary element in the, um, in the professor's uh, body um, to help those students who wanted to um, really deepen their knowledge, but they didn't have to attend his courses. So, it was not only um, optional, but it was also, let's call it extravagant, like something that not all the students would have done. Um, So, for example, he was immensely popular with the English community because um, the English students came from England, especially to study Greek. So he was the perfect case to do that. And that's how also, for example, William Latimer, uh, the founder of the College of Physicians, uh, was his student. And he then goes back to, the, um, to England with all the knowledge not only of Aristotle but also of medical humanism that, that he could uh, come into contact with because of course Padua was also very close to Ferrara where Leoniceno was active, the doctor and philologist who translated everything by Galen and corrected him. So there's always in the Renaissance this idea of we have to correct what the medieval and the arabics have interpreted wrongly and we have to amend all the mistakes so mm. that's one one feature the the element of philology uh, but for sure um, going back to the um, the, the more esoteric <laughs> let's call it for sure uh, rites and yes prayer is a really important feature um, for Tomeo um, and he actually adopts a croaklian division of the five moments of prayer to ascend so he has this dialogue entitled uh, satoletus or on prayers Uh, satoletus was a a very important figure he was the chamberlain to pope clement vii um, and he was a really close friend of tomeo so this is the sort of environment he was um, in but it's always very um, interesting to see how Tomei was a priest himself but um, he wasn't afraid but also he didn't need to be to tackle things that were potentially heretical at the time he was never sentenced to death or threatened by the Inquisition Um, the the Republic of Venice allowed this You, you you could say whatever you wanted also I don't, there's no reason to believe that Tomeo was a pagan. He was a convinced Catholic. Right. Um, and everything he writes about paganism, it's to some extent, let's say, archaeological. It's a sort of erudite take on a set of ideas um, that he's interested in because they constitute a precedent Um, to Christianity or everything that comes later, but they are not necessarily the truth, or they are not necessarily, they don't need to be perfectly um, synthesized with Christianity. Right.
0: Um, But he is very interested, presumably, in this stuff. For sure. Now, what kind of stuff did he say that would get one in trouble with the Inquisition if one lived in a less enlightened place than Venice?
1: Well, um, for example, as we have the the example a little bit later of Giordano Bruno, for example, but that's exactly because it is later. Those were still years in which you could actually say whatever you wanted. You know, when after, um, let's say after Luther, um, things start to get worse, uh, and that happens in Italy as well, like the the. the freedom of speech, as you would call it today, is considerably reduced.
0: So the crackdown yes,
1: comes. comes? just he is just on time. Um, so he lives okay. in the right years. So is very much open. You can say anything you want. It's not problematic. But also, you know, in uh, many of his dialogues, and I do not believe this is just an excuse or a way to save his face, he says that everything that he has said or um, discussed in these dialogues is to be taken as uh, valid only insofar as it doesn't go against Christianity. But there is no reason to believe that he did this to, you know, shield himself <laughs> or protect himself right. from... So he's
0: just being a humble Christian, you think? Yes.
1: But um, there's many instances. Of, for example, he was in very much uh, drawn to St. Paul. Um, he was, into, well, Dionysius, but that's also different. But, you know, he read Bible, he was aware of this, but that's also because people at the time were supposed to know. And um, that was their, own, their upbringing. You would go to church, you would um, in any case be schooled in a certain way. So it wasn't very much of a, of a strange thing um, to have these two things together. So this pagan context and this uh, Christian beliefs. Yeah, they were happy together.
0: Speaking of Christianity, one thing we were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, well, okay. We have. Let's let's take stock here. He's a Christian priest, but that doesn't really mean that much. No. Um, it means he has a paycheck.
1: Yes, exactly. He he has a living. Otherwise, it would be hard.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> he's a kind of academic of some kind. He has a yes. job teaching, even yes. though he's not like a faculty member. No. Um, he has. Well, we know he has an, a theory of natural magic, which mm-hmm. is not uncommon in this time. Yes, um,
1: especially. Yeah. And
0: it's also safe, even in, even though you're saying that you're kind of safe to say what you want. Presumably that doesn't include things like spri- we, we can um, use demons legitimately as Christians or any there's there must be limits to what you can say yes
1: there must be limits Um, also for example um, this is important in Padua there was uh, well someone called um, Marsilius of Padua and he was very much important although you know he's considered medieval by Tomeo so he would never mention him but I mean it's inevitable because the tradition of Spiritual and demonic magic is uh, very embedded in Padua, also visually, because uh, these ideas that uh, um, Dabano um, wrote in his books ended up being uh, represented as frescoes in the Palazzo della Ragione, so in the palace, in the main building that was the center of social life so it was basically the the, the mayor's uh, building and the mayor building was you know painted with these images of astrological signs and the influence that these astrological uh, beings had on the daily life of people so daily life meaning really the peasants uh, the bankers uh, the people who lived in a city mm. and they entered this space and they were basically told how their future would have looked like. So there is in Padua a, a very specific visual culture and um, that is to be taken into account because um, also a humanist in the 15th century would have walked in there and would have seen these things but he would have also gone to the very close by chapel of the Scrovegni, and he would have seen Giotto's frescoes and that's also a representation of actually um, also Arabic um, astrology and astronomy um, on the walls of a Christian church. And so you get these constant contaminations in Padua between Arabic culture, um, between Greek uh, knowledge, and they flow into the arts and then they are digested and they flow back into new humanistic dialogues. Um, So it's really eclectic. Yeah. Um, so Inter-
0: in, It seems like an interesting example to me of, you know, when, when studying astrology, yes. history of astrology, we can certainly study the history of astrology, but the problem is when you want to study the history of astrology in the context of esotericism, because yes. it's totally mainstream for yes. much of its history, yes. in this time, in pl- I mean, it's, it's elite. Yes, because it's very complicated and yes. not everyone understands it. Exactly. So it's elite, but that's not the same thing as esoteric necessarily. No. And um, it's this—it's um, actually on the walls, like it's—it's it's mainstream science, right? Exactly. And um, but also prestigious and something we want to kind of depict and, and make much of, like, and fully integrated within Christianity. So how is that esoteric? I don't know. But it, its certainly part of the history of astrology to be this sort of extremely. Important elite central science to how people understand the cosmos they live in and try to deal with the future and this sort of thing
1: Yes, also it's um, Well art is also a very important feature of Padra knowledge-making Because um, throughout the Renaissance it is interesting how the Renaissance debate on um, the nature of images appearances and likenesses Um, flows into the philosophical debate and then re-emerges in the arts. Um, So it's interesting, Tomeo was um, made um, to be a character of the first ever treatise on sculpture, ever, um, written uh, by someone called Pomponio Gaurico, um, who was uh, from near Naples. Um, Actually, it's interesting because his brother was a really famous astrologer. And um, this treatise was, as the title says, about sculpture, but for the first time it was a combination of theories drawn from philosophy, from literature and from art theory. And Tomeo is the main character of this uh, of this treatise um, divided into five parts um, that deal with the main agents of art so the artifacts but also the work itself which is considered to be an agent which is very peculiar and Gaurico is uh, quite unique because he um, invents new terms to define artists or more precisely their faculties as creators or producers. For example uh, one of them is Euphantasiotos and uh, he comes up with these um, incredible terms um, and this in, in specifically means um, that an artist has to be able to visualize um, inside of the walls of his mind um, the ideas and then to transform these ideas into a material object outside of himself. So uh, this is the whole, the word contains all of this. And Tomeo is made, um, you know, as a character, he, he opposes um, to some extent uh, Gaurico's ideas. Right, um, because it's,
0: it's too... Platonist
1: and um, it's um, interesting because of course Tomeo also has a, a Platonist component but um, his ideas are always uh, grounded in Aristotelian physics right. so for him uh, for example Gaurico denies the possibility for artists to depict things that do not exist in real life so um, you cannot depict a satyr because it does not exist So he denies the possibility for things to be non-realistic. Tomeo is very much against this, and he says that everything we imagine is real. Right. Now, this brings us to a really interesting um, thing, uh, which is Tomeo's uh, theory of the imagination. It's really interesting because uh, for Tomeo, there is two faculties of, let's call it broadly, the faculty to imagine, to depict one is fantasia and one is imaginatio. Fantasia is purely um, linked to experience, to the senses. So when you experience fantasia, you're not thinking; you're just absorbing notions or not notions more um,
0: sense data. Yeah,
1: exactly from the world, and you just you're passively receiving these. Yeah. So this would be memory for Toméo, whereas the active part of this is imagination where you transform them and this for Tomeo is reminiscence. So you see how he combines Aristotle with Plato and he unites these two terms but also to complicate Now
0: the imaginatio um, presumably that's where you get centaurs and and satyrs because you have these you you know about goats you know about horses you know about humans and then you recombine. Now is there he asked with Mm -hmm. an eye to Ficino on the one hand and yes. maybe like Burma a bit later on the yes. other hand is there a more transcendent faculty of imagination yes. where we get inspiration?
1: Yes, there is maybe not so much inspiration but for sure it leads to um, a kind of spiritual intuition of a beyond um, so for Tomeo um, it's in, you know the realm of the one um, it's Okay, unknowable, undescribable. So he's very brief about it, precisely because of that reason. Does he
0: talk about it as a one?
1: Yes, he does. So Um, what's he reading? Proclus. He's reading Proclus. His reference is always Proclus. Um, It's his Neoplatonic reference. So the point, though, is that he then um, explains it um, through Dionysius, because for him, Proclus is very much, you know, the source or related etc so
0: really so he doesn't think Proclus was a pagan who ripped off Dionysius at this point they've they figured out that
1: no they didn't know that they didn't know that they um, they thought that uh, Dionysius was still a a disciple of Paul etc so that's not into the picture Uh, but for sure um, um, what what we can read from his text is that the, the one is apophatic, but he uses this image that is present in Dionysius, which is basically that the more you try to approach the one, the more you um, distance yourself from it, as if you were um, on a boat trying to um, pull yourself closer to the shore with a rope. But everything you're doing is to constantly remove yourself more and more from it. You think you're approaching the the shore, and actually you're just going backwards. Um, so f- that's for him the view of the one. So that's why he doesn't talk about it. Because the more you talk about it, the more you uh, um, you remove yourself from it. So everything he can talk about is, let's say, the world in between, which is still divine, but not as divine, as the cause of the all, how he calls it, the cause of the all. So um, imagination plays a very important part in this uh, in this middle part, precisely because the imagination is the mediating power between um, the sublunary world uh, of men and mortal things, where there's generation and corruption, and the world that we cannot know, cannot describe, cannot picture. Um, so the imagination is really the, the force that uh, makes man divine, for Tomeo.
0: Right. And how do we get, t- do we get to that higher world? Presumably after we die, if we're good Christians.
1: Yes, exactly, and for him there's also um, for sure things you can do during your life to help yourself get there. <laughs> so this would uh, imply for sure prayer, but prayer in a philosophical sense. So. This is where Tomeo brings in um, the five stages of prayer of Proclus, and he explicitly says, you know, that there is this ascent, uh, and then you end up in complete union, theosis, and um, that's his view. So one instrument is prayer. The other instrument is sacrifices, but sacrifices within the scheme of oracles. So, for example, Trophonius. He has uh, a whole dialogue called Trophonius, yes. Um, my favorite. Your favorite? Yeah, yeah he was I'm, working
0: uh, on, I'm working on Plutarch's myths oh. as part of my ascent study. And so oh, you
1: would like to know the myth then.
0: Of and uh, Apollonius of Tiana visited the Oracle of Trophonius as well.
1: Yes, you would be happy to know that uh, Tomeo was the editor for the first printed version of Plutarch in 1508. Ah, uh, no way. Yes. Um, so Trophonius, he has this dialogue um, called Trophonius or on Divination, uh, the most incredible of all the dialogues. Um, where he um, so because it's the first one of the ten of the nine dialogues of the first edition. Basically, it's it contains all the others. So throughout the dialogue, you how
0: Pythagorean?
1: Yes. But Tomé was really Pythagorean. He was really Pythagorean. Um, he believed in, um, in the process of reincarnation of the soul every thousand years. He um, actually states this. Um, So he, you know, he was really into this. Uh, He demonstrates the geometricity of the soul um, through schemes. So he's very much into um, producing diagrams to explain, for example, the generation of the soul in the Timaeus as explained in the commentaries by Proclus. And he thinks that um, all the musical correspondences, musical ratios, um, all those things that are implied in the numerical creation of the soul are true, applicable in real life so that's also why he's really passionate about music um, but this is a very renaissance feature I mean, Ficino played the lute so many other, uh, even Petrarch played the lute um, the lute, which is also a very interesting uh, connection with the Arabic world, of course Right,
0: that's just what I was going to say, it's not a Greek instrument it's, exactly. a, it's a medieval Arabic instrument Exactly, Adapted.
1: exactly. but that was, um, the lute for example was very important for the preservation of health uh, because the four chords Although they were then added more, etc., but originally four were the four humors, and the way you played the single chords were basically uh, intended to uh, restore the uh, balance of the body that was uh, gone lost. So really, music was therapeutic. Wow. Um, so the. The musical um, theory which, for example, um, D.P. Walker, um, which is um, something (laughs) esoteric people will appreciate, has a whole chapter on Ficino's musicality. Um, There have recently been published a a number of articles on the music of the pulse in Ficino. Uh, Very interesting. Um, And so music, yes, comes back again into Meos, um, too, and um, it plays a very important part in the prayers as well, because, of course, some prayers can be musical. And uh, we know, for example, that there was a ceremony at some point during the early 15th century for the... Funeral of an important figure in the Republic of Venice and Toméo composed the prayer for the funeral and this prayer was sung during a procession. So... Um, Do you mean early 16th century? Yes, 16th cool. century, yes. Yep. Sorry. This is um, interesting because it also is linked to the revival of Greek epigrams. In not only Padua, this was uh, Italy wide, although, you know, all the Italian states, let's say. Um, and um, well, yes, the epigram was was revived and it became a really important tool, um, not only for philosophical related matters.
0: Well, we're talking about music and we were talking about um, theory of the soul, really. And it's so interesting to me that he did. Um...
1: Trophonius, yes. Yeah, uh, Trophonius. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, well, Trophonius, I mean, uh, there is a whole thing to be said about it. He describes the whole myth. Um, Does he describes the oracle
0: like drawing on Pausanias and various Paus- Pausanias sources. Pausanias
1: is one of the main sources Tomei uses for all his dialogues. Right. Um, Pausanias, together with Pliny, he uh, mixes these together with Plutarch and Proclus. These are the main references he has. Um, the four Ps. The four Ps, yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, But it's a a unique dialogue and it um, really shows just how creative and eclectic he was as, I wouldn't even call that philosopher, as just a thinker.
0: So you mentioned divination and sacrifice. Yes. So what form does sacrifice take to a Catholic, Italian, Renaissance person? And, and divination, for that matter.
1: Well, the, the way that sacrifice is, is mentioned is also in relation to, for example, what Cicero writes in his On Divination. Um, so um, sacrifice, of course, is, um, comes into play, let's say, um, on a more, um, again, philological uh, sense, because he, he revives um, the literature that he reads in the original, and then he tries to incorporate, uh, incorporate as, m- as many elements as he can into his dialogues. And that's where also you can start wondering um, to what extent they were fictitious, fictional um, because I do not believe that they performed sacrifices in Padua in the 15th and 16th centuries.
0: Are we talking about like killing pigs, killing um, cows? We
1: are talking about, yes, uh, blood offerings um, mainly, uh, which he describes. But I personally do not believe, and I have never encountered this in any letter, or literature or anything, that he, they actually did it. Right. Um, I think he was mostly part of the, yeah, this uh, fascination they had with the sources. So, of course, they included it. But I'm sure that whereas his uh, ideas about prayer are much more accurate to what they actually did, I do not know um, actually about um, divination, about sacrifices or anything like that.
0: What, what's the theory then? Mm-hmm. What is the fictionalized tale? Like whom, whom do you make a blood sacrifice to? hmm God?
1: No. Jesus? Um, no, I, that's it's actually interesting. Jesus is never mentioned in Tomeo, never. Uh, he really? would never mention uh, Jesus. He mentions God, but, you know, the way he mentions God is much more similar to the one rather than a God in a Christian sense. Tomeo also believes in the soul's eternity, not he's not a creationist. Oh,
0: pre-existence, you Yeah, mean. yeah. Did he read Oregon?
1: Uh, yes. Okay. That's a sure thing, yes. Uh, but it's quite different from Florentine Neoplatonism. Um, so it's, um, it's very unique. Um, but still, he's Christian, uh, because that doesn't rule out the possibility for Christianity to be, let's say, maybe an improvement or a further passage of, uh, in history of all these practices uh, incorporated into um, a particular culture with other laws because that doesn't rule it out. But for him, for sure, um, there is no um, Jesus in the dialogue. There is no such thing as um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's only spirits, but the spirits in Tomeo are vapors and vehicles of the soul. Right. So it's really different from yeah the Holy Spirit as you would find in a in a more um, canonical text.
0: Right. So. We don't get Jesus. Now, this is something I wanted to ask you about. Yes. In this period, and please correct me if I'm I'm misrepresenting this period, because it's not a period I'm a specialist in, but the Catholic Church was, well, at least for part of his life, the Catholic Church was still the only option on the table. There's no Reformation yet. No. But people within Catholicism, intellectuals within Catholicism, Mm -hmm. are very aware that... You can see the cracks in the walls, and that something has to change or the building's gonna collapse. Like There's a sense of a crisis in, in the church, yeah?
1: Absolutely.
0: And so, one response to this famously is Ficino and Pigoku saying, Ah, what we need is the perennial wisdom, which is going to kind of like revitalize the church exactly. from within the church. Yeah? Exactly,
1: yes, exactly. So, that's not wrong. Um, um, that's absolutely not how wrong. How
0: does he fit into that?
1: Yes. So scenario. he fits much more. Um, I think he is much more close uh, to uh, someone like Erasmus. So um, the way Erasmus rethinks, let's say, um, Christianity, because he also responds to this. Erasmus is completely Catholic, but he accounts for the need of a Reformation. But this Reformation implies recentering the whole system of theology before religion around the individual so what they do is they try to get rid of all these supplementary elements such as rituals but you know rituals in a a catholic sense so um, these ceremonies basically ceremonies are not needed to meet or unite or know or arrive to god Um, we do not need pictures to see god to um, meditate about him, to get closer to him, to perceive a likeness of him. Um, Everything that deviates from one's own search for God within is not needed. That's very much what Tomeo does as well. I mean, it's not a coincidence that he's a friend of Erasmus. (laughs) Also, they have, um, there is an interesting um, thing actually, because Erasmus wrote in 1524, he published a dialogue on the game of chess. Well, not exactly chess, but more knuckle bones. And it was part of the colloquia. And two months beforehand, Tomeo published a book with this exact same title. And there is actually a very interesting letter in which um, Erasmus speaks about this, saying that he, if he would have known of Tomeo's book, he would never have published his because his would have been, his in comparison, is really poor. But apart from this, it's interesting because they published it with the same publisher in Venice and they met in Padua in 1508. Rasmus and, and Tomeo and I am sure that they had a good time speaking about their ideas and uh, the need for a reformation but these were all people who were absolutely enlightened uh, in terms of um, accepting elements of, of paganism for sure Tomeo was much more eclectic than someone like Erasmus mm. he, uh, you know, he wrote a dialogue on Trophonius he, Erasmus would have never really done it yeah. uh, but for example you know Erasmus was extremely satirical uh, really ironical Tomeo was less so, although he's kooky, but he's not, he's not trying to go down that alley because his way of being pedagogical doesn't go through that, through that instrument. He looks for a different means. But they both look for this reformation that comes from within. Um, so that's their way of reacting to it.
0: Hmm. So, you've given us a really nice portrait of this this guy it's starting to fill in like I start to feel like I can kind of get a picture of what he was about there's a lot more to talk about which probably falls outside the scope of the podcast his his theory of matter and the spiritual matter is is very very interesting because it bespeaks a late medieval worldview in which Mm -hmm. many centuries of alchemy have influenced the way people conceive of material things yes but probably we don't have time to get into that
1: what else? Did he have any
0: like scandalous sexual stuff that we that is interesting?
1: No, actually. Was he into boys? Um, no, no. Um, he calls no. himself a
0: Renaissance man. Not yeah.
1: No, actually, I I absolutely think the opposite because uh, there are some mentions in manuscripts of uh, women. Uh, but they are um, encrypted, like uh, the way he uh, plays with words. So there's one who should be Flora, uh, but it's it's sort of written in um, Greek and uh, transformed and uh, sort of Anthusa. So he tries to hide the names um, behind these little games. He was kooky to some extent, but um, he spent his whole life alone, actually. Uh, The the interesting thing, which is really cool, uh, is that he was really into animals, um, But not only because he liked them, but because animals were a very important part of his philosophy. The interesting thing, though, was that (laughs) he had a pelican pet.
0: Uh.
1: And he was very fond of his pelican pet and uh, one day the pelican pet died he thought that it was a <laughs> it was a um basically it was uh, the sign that his death would have come very soon and he died a month later wow no <laughs> <How> <laughs> this is he history die? uh he died of old age right <laughs> that's all
0: interesting why are animals so important to his philosophy
1: yes so um animals are first of all it's linked to let's say his career as a commentator of Aristotle. Uh, so he translates, after all, all the books on the animals. Right. Um, so for him, it's important but to... the question
0: could be then, why did he choose those to translate? Because he was already in animals, maybe?
1: Yeah, well, um, actually, I think there is a practical um, answer to this, which is that he um, basically translated um, Aristotle books after his colleague Pomponazzi had died. Uh, so he translated the ones that were missing. So right. it happened to be the animal ones, and it happened to be the animals. Of course, though, I'm sure he was very, very fond of what he was doing because from his commentaries you can really see uh, the engagement with the topic, and his uh, commentaries are interesting um, also because they are very different from his dialogues. Uh, first of all, for a practical reason, they were intended as textbooks. So they were adopted as canonical textbooks um, throughout the 16th century in Bologna and Padua, so the two most important universities. And uh, apart from this, he then, uh, as he did with basically everything, he re-elaborated his commentaries into the dialogues uh, in a more complicated, sophisticated way. And the animals come to play a very important part in the sense that for Tomeo, animals and plants are very important because they act as um, indexes of the divine in nature. So for example, sunflowers are like Plutarch, they pray to God. Uh, the way that they, um, they turn during the day, the way they follow the sun, um, this is a teaching for us. Right, right. Um, humans, so animals are the same. The fact that he had a pelican pet is not a coincidence because the pelican is highly symbolic for a Christian. you know the the, the pelican feeds his babies or her babies, but uh, in the Christian imagery because by doing this you bend your um, beak. your beak <laughs> towards your tummy. It looks as if you are um, basically piercing yourself and this is associated with Christ because it's a sacrifice, it's a self-inflicted pain whereby you bleed. So the pelican is a very highly charged symbolic animal for Christianity and I don't think it's a coincidence that in the end he chose the pelican. Um, But he also had a peacock in his garden and he had a horse which he used to go around town in Padua, so very distinct. And so, yes, animals like plants, uh, herbs, for example, um, they're all very important elements because they have the same dignity as human beings. They are rational beings, for Tomeo, because they think. And although they are limited in, the, um, in some intellectual capacities, they are fundamental for the economy of nature. And therefore, they are important for man to know his place In the cosmos.
0: Wow, that's a very enlightened um, approach to other species. Yes. Like they're not just food. Not at all,
1: not at all. Tomeo often remarks this. Um, It's very important for him uh, throughout the dialogues. He also brings back points that he made 24, 20 20 years beforehand in the commentaries. So really it's uh, it's a fundamental part of his uh, of his philosophy.
0: Brilliant. So a very eclectic and Interesting philosophy, drawing from all kinds of places, in that particular moment in history when yes. Italy was mm-hmm. a hotbed of that sort of thing. Yes. Um, Allegra, thank you so much for giving us a, a portrait of this thank you. amazing Renaissance thinker.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm sorry it wasn't theurgic enough, maybe, but or um, but it was um, yeah eclectic. So
0: eclectic and esoteric. Yes. So <laughs> so stay esoteric.
1: Yes. Bye.